what a praise service that was. Boy, I feel lifted up. My spirit's full this morning. And I just want to say thank you to, to our staff. This month I've had uh, the opportunity to work sort of on the inside with them and see all that they do. And I think let's, let's give them a round of applause today just in thanksgiving for, for all they do and so many people that uh, make all this happen each week. We are grateful for you, so thank you. <clears throat> When I was in seminary, where many of our church members are, you are here studying, preparing for ministry, I worked three jobs. So when I hear about what you do to make the ends meet financially each month, I've been there and I understand it. <clears throat> and uh, I, I cleaned out dog kennels, and that was one part-time job I had. I, I was a uh, a graduate assistant to one of our professors, so I graded papers, and I also pastored a little church that was 80, 85 miles away in central Texas, and we drove down there every Sunday. And um, so two of those jobs intersected. It, this story that I want to share with you, I, I had the, the opportunity and privilege to meet a young man named Barry Stover. Now, Barry is handicapped. Barry is blind. And not just uh, diminished sight, not just impaired, but I mean blind. When you look at Barry, his pupils never develop, so you can tell he is totally blind. He, Barry sees nothing. So one of my jobs was to help Barry take his quizzes for New Testament survey and for Greek. And so I got to know Barry pretty well. And Barry loved hamburgers. So uh, Dee and I had him over uh, for dinner uh, several times, and he used to love eating those hamburgers. Well, Barry is a savant, not a servant, but a savant. Have you ever met somebody that had a gift that was so amazing that it had to have been God-given. He was a calendrical, is a calendrical savant. What I mean by that is, if you tell him your birthday, and then you tell him what year you were born, he'll tell you within two seconds what day of the week it was. I'm not kidding. This, this fella is amazing. Every year on my birthday since I met Barry, he calls me and wishes me happy birthday. He keeps up with me. I don't know how he gets when all the cell phone changes, and, but he finds out where I am and he calls me. What a blessing he is. Well, Barry read Braille. I saw his Bibles and he said to me one day, he said, he said, uh, Craig, I want to preach. Can I come to your church and preach? Well, the church we pastored was in the middle of nowhere, uh, central Texas, down, actually down near Waco, and it was farmers, ranchers. Um, on a good day, we had 15 people, and we pastored there for five years. And I said, well, sure, let me talk to the deacons, make sure it's okay, and I, I'm sure they won't mind. So Barry came down on this bitter cold. It, it, Anybody from Texas, you know they have these things they call blue northers? 
It's like this cold front that comes through and everything just turns blue. I mean, it, it can drop 30 degrees over a matter of minutes. Anyway, it was a blue northern day. It was cloudy. It was cold. Little one-room church. And we had those gas stoves. And everybody would get there and they'd light them and everybody would stand around with your coats on trying to get your hands warm. And it was really, really fun days, you know, back in the old days. Well, Barry was with me, and he got up to preach, and he preached for 45 minutes, and it was all memorized scripture. It was just one scripture. It would remind him of another one and another one, and it was, it was a beautiful thing, really, to see somebody who had so much of the Word of God hidden in his heart, because he can't see it. He, just, he reads it with his, with his fingers. Well, amazing young man. In fact, I used to help him fold his dollars, his ones, fives, tens, and twenties, and he would fold them in a certain way so he could feel what they were so he didn't get shortchanged if he went to the store. So we're sitting there, and Barry's preaching, and he's almost to the end of his sermon. I hear the door at the back of the, well, the front of the church open, and in walked a family. I could hear their car running outside the church, just a, I was, couldn't believe it was actually running, it was in such bad shape. And this man and his wife, you could tell they were very poor, and their children, they came in and they filled up the back row, and I said, Lord, you have doubled our attendance <laughs> with Barry's preaching. Thank you, Lord, thank you. And after the service was over, our deacons went back, and what it was, the, the fellow needed help. He couldn't turn his car off. It wouldn't, he couldn't get it restarted. But they were passing through, and they needed some food money, needed some gas money. So our deacons were, it was awesome. I saw them pulling out their wallets and just giving to this guy. So Barry says, Greg, what's going on back there? I said, well, Barry, we have a family in need they're taking care of benevolent uh, ministry need. He goes, well, I want to give too. I said, okay. So I took him by the arm. The fellow was out in his car. We went out there, and it was bitter cold. I mean, it was blowing, and the fellow rolled his window down, and Barry walked up. He had his, had his cane, and I led him to the window, and he reached in his wallet, and he pulled out his last $5 bill. And Dee was standing there with me. I thought, wow. He pulled it out and handed it in the window to this man. And that man, I will never forget the look on his face. He looked at me with tears in his eyes as if to say, I can't take his, this man's money. And I looked at him and I said, he wants you to have it. It's a gift, and you need to take it. And so he took the $5, and they rolled up the window, and they drove off. Well, I've never forgotten that story. And when we look at the widow who gives the last two mites, the last two cents that she has, in fact, it's less than a penny that the widow gave, it's a beautiful story of sacrifice. So, I want to end the series that we've been in and sort of tie all of this together as we talk about 
the, the, the players, you know, every, anytime you come to a story in the Gospels or any historical narrative, you need to understand the players. It's kind of like on, in, in the games we'll watch this afternoon. They'll say, and the front line's composed of, and then they have, <laughs> go Saints. And then they'll give you the linemen, then they'll give you the backfield, and then when they change, the ball changes, they come up and they, it's called the lineup. Well, I want to give you the lineup before we go to Jesus' passage, okay? To the passage in Luke. So we have four different groups here. First of all, it's the tithe. I want to explain what a tithe is. I know you know it's a 10%, but I want you to see where it comes from in the Bible. We're going to look at the, uh, the scribes. Then we're going to look at the widow and then we're going to see also the rich. So we have to look at the players. So let's talk about tithing for a moment. We've been in a stewardship message. We've been leading up to this time. And I want to share with you where the concept of tithing comes from. Well, a, a tithe, and I'm, I may have gotten ahead of my slides here, but the definition is it's a religious act of giving a tenth for the support of a religious purpose. That's a general definition. That's what a tithe is. So the concept comes from the Old Testament. The very first mention of a tithe is back in Genesis. So if you have your Bibles there, I think I have the scriptures up on the, the uh, PowerPoints. The very first mention of a tithe in the Bible was when Abram, God had not yet changed his name to Abraham, so Abram had heard that his nephew Lot had been taken into captivity. So Abraham, Abram got a, cr a group of folks together. They went out and they basically rescued from the enemy his nephew. And then when it was all over, the king of Salem, who is, whose name is Melchizedek, that strange name in the Old Testament. It, it comes up again in he, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest. Now get that, the priest of, uh, or priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And so then, Abram paid Melchizedek a tithe, a 10% of the plunder. Interesting. Well, the second instance of tithing occurs in Genesis 28 with Jacob. And Jacob has had this dream, and he saw heaven, and so when he woke up, he said, this, this is the Lord's place, the Lord, the house of God. So he named it Bethel, which means house of God. And he prayed to the Lord. He said in verse 22, I'll just skip to the, uh, the key verse. And this stone, which he had slept on through the night, I can't imagine doing that, but he did it. And he took the stone that was his pillow and he set it up to be a pillar in God's house. And he says, I will give you a tenth. Jacob says, God, I will give you my tithe if you will protect us and provide for our needs. 
So now tithing has become a promise in the Old Testament that is made. So that's the first encounter of tithing that we have in the very first book of the Bible. So what is the substance? If they are giving 10% of their substance, what is this? Well, I, I put together a slide for you. Uh, if you want to take notes, you can see these later. Leviticus 27, Numbers 18, Deuteronomy 12, and Deuteronomy 14. I'll be referring to those in reading some of these passages. So let's look at Leviticus. If we go over to Leviticus right before the book of Numbers starts, we read this. And a tithe, in verse 30, from the land. Everything from the land, whether it's grain, soil, fruit of the trees, belongs to whom? The Lord. It is holy to the Lord. If a man redeems any of his tithe, that means if he takes it back, look what happens. <laughs> he must add a fifth of the value to that. So uh, you can calculate that out. I'm not real good at percentages, but, if you, but there was a penalty if you said, I'm going to give this to God, eh, nah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a little back. Well, we, we mustn't do that. So the entire tithe of the herd and the flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod. Now that's important because that's the standard. So if you had animals, you would hold your shepherd's rod out and the animals would parade by and you would go one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. The tenth animal was God's. Had to be pulled out of the herd, called out, and offered to God. Now what if that were your best sheep? <laughs> well, you can't substitute. You know, you go to those restaurants sometimes and they say you can't substitute. This is how it is. You can't put a salad on there. You can't make a substitute and bring in a crippled one so I'm going to keep the good one. I'll give God the crippled one. We're going to see that play out again in a moment. So they would, they would count these, all of this tenth fruit, agricultural products, animals, it goes to the Lord. That's the tithe. Now, I think it's important to recognize that the Jews gave more than 10%. Taylor mentioned that a few weeks ago, and the, we were talking this morning, the tenth is the starting point. So that's where we want to get to. It's called a baseline. So we want to start at the 10%, but listen to what the Jews would give in Deuteronomy. We're jumping around a little bit, but go uh, find Deuteronomy there. And in Deuteronomy 12, verse 6, Moses says, bring your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, the things that you have vowed to give, and your free will offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. Now that's what Taylor meant by that statement. The Jews had not only the tithe, but they had other kinds of offerings and sacrifices. 
So I think it's important for us to keep that in mind. They even had this thing called the first fruits. You'll read about that in Deuteronomy. What is first fruits? Well, it's interesting. First fruit is when the farmer would go out and he would look at the field and he would do whatever farmers do. They know when the crop is ready and when it's the best time. So they would look at the harvest and they section it off. And this section here is 10% of my crop. So they harvest that, the first fruits, and that's the Lord's. And that's what we mean when we say we take our tithe off the top and not the bottom. It's like one of my uh, colleagues said one time, I want to know how you got this office. And I said to him, well, I, I tithe on the gross. <laughs> and he, went, he looked at me, what? I said, I tithe on the gross. Not the net, but the gross. The large amount. Not what I bring home. I said, just forget it. So anyway, he said, okay. <laughs> In other words, tithing on the gross, God blesses us. And I was joking with my colleague about that. So anyway, the first fruits are when we give to God off the top. Now, there were reaping requirements. In the Old Testament, when the farmer went out to harvest, there are passages of Scripture that say you must not harvest to the corner of your property. So in other words, you would just sort of round it off. To those of you in farmer who've grown up in farming areas, that means you turn the tractor and leave the corners. Why would they do that? So the poor could come in and they could reap because they had no land. With no land, you cannot eat. If you cannot eat, you will starve and die. And God cares for the poor. He always has, he always will. There were gleaning regulations. You know what gleaning is? Gleaning is when you go through and you harvest and some of the, some of the crop drops to the ground and you can't go back and pick that up because we leave that for the poor. I even read in a rabbinical writing this week as I was doing this research, there was a, there was a rabbi who said that a vineyard grower who puts his basket under the vine when he's pulling his, his grapes and catches the ones that fall off was a robber of the poor. So they would not put the basket underneath so that what dropped onto the ground, the poor could come by and pick them up and have something to eat. So you see, God had all these regulations that provided for, for everyone. Now, what is our motive for tithing? We know we're supposed to do this. And why should we tithe? Well, I would submit to you that that's the case we've tried to build for four weeks. First of all, it starts, our walk with God starts with obedience. We looked at that sermon number one that I preached. Secondly, it comes out of a heart of gratitude. Ingratitude, my grandfather used to say, is one of the greatest sins there is. It's just not recognizing that 
God has done so much for us. Obedience, gratitude. We saw last week the leper who was thankful. Nine were healed, only one came back because he was thankful. And today, giving requires sacrifice, doesn't it? So that's the message today of the, of the widow. She made a great sacrifice. So our motives for giving are obedience, gratitude, thankfulness, and sacrifice. All right, so where does the tithe go? Look at Deuteronomy 26, verse 12. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. Why would they do that? So that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Let's break that down. The Levite, that's the church staff. I mean, the Levites were the tribe that God said, you cannot own land. You are going to take care of the business of God, the worship leaders. And they had the ministry in the local towns and hamlets. They had the ministry at the temple. And that is uh, listed out with incredible detail what the Levites did at the temple if you'll read through the book of Leviticus. So you make that study and if you want to look at the offerings and all that, you can ask Dr. J.P. Patterson. (laughs) He'll explain all that to you and how those offerings work. But the Levite were the people that took care of the house of God. We would call that our beloved staff. So we are called of God to take care of the needs of the house of God. And what a wonderful testimony we heard today that that our church family, we have, have almost paid for that entrance so we can keep coming to and leaving from the house of the Lord. So the Levites. Secondly, the foreigner or the alien. These were non-Jews who were in the country, but they had no way to work. They couldn't own property, so they couldn't grow crops. They had needs. We must also be sensitive to those around us who have no way to to eat, maybe hungry, on the streets. I see that as our care effect, don't you? That's a great ministry. That's an awesome ministry. We are doing what God said to do when we go out and those groups go out with Care Effect every Wednesday night. We feed the hungry. We feed the foreigner, the alien. We feed those who are in our country that just are having a tough time of it. God loves them. Remember, God loves all people, and he wants us to take care of them. So the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, who's that? That's the orphan. I think about our foster care program here and all that these families do. It's amazing what we do through the ministry of this church. 
And uh, Pastor Crosby led us into these ministries. I, it, to me, I tell my students that uh, I love my pastor, um, but uh, I tell my students, you know, Pastor Crosby is the most balanced pastor I know. He can preach. I used to tell him every Sunday, Pastor, I learn something from you every time you speak. Thank you for feeding me. And yet he understood the needs of the, of the community, and he had us organized into outreach. And he just, in my opinion, was just the pastor of pastors. And, and I sure miss my pastor. But I learned so much from Pastor David uh, through his time here that I had known him. Okay, the last one is the widow. And now we're honing in on the, on the passage for today. But before we get there, what does it mean to rob God? We have to look at this. Because if I left this pulpit today and did not share this with you, if you're not aware of this, we have to go to Malachi. In the book of Malachi, it's right before Matthew in your Bible. It's the last book of the Old Testament. One of what they call the minor prophets, not because it's insignificant, it's just small. So Malachi, we're going to look at two verses. 1.8, the Lord said, when you bring blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? What's he talking about there? Blind animals? He's talking about calling the herd. <clears throat> that one-tenth that belongs to, to God, it's separating, pulling the good one, and reducing the gene pool with inferior animals and, and putting in the blind. When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong, God asks. Then he says something interesting. Try offering those to your governor. If you're going to pay your bill on your taxes, try offering that. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now go over to chapter 3. God speaks to them. He said, you are robbing me. And they said, what? How are we robbing you, God? And then God speaks it plainly through the prophet in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you. Hmm. Because you are robbing me. And then this amazing verse. We, we even have an old hymn we used to sing. I, I, I won't sing that for you this morning, but... Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord. Wait a minute. Do I read that correctly? God is asking us to test him? Yes, he is. Look at what he's asking. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see... If I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven, 
pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, meaning drop the fruit before the time is up, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed. Yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. My goodness. That's one thing we don't want to do is rob God in our tithes and offerings. So that's tithing. That's the major player in this message. Now, there are three other groups that we need to look at just very quickly, the scribes, because we're going to hear what Jesus thinks about the scribes in a moment. But the scribes were the official scholars. They're kind of like the professors of the day, and they interpreted the law. They're often associated with the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed in the written law, and the scribes gave them the interpretation of the written law. So they, they went together, though they often had differences in, in some beliefs, but they're very, very similar. So the scribes, in fact, we're even going to see, I think we see a picture of them up there. How'd you like to worship with that group of fellows? Austere, serious. Well, the thing about the scribes, in a lot of cases, they were a bunch of thieves. You'll see in a minute what they do. Now, the widow, Almana in Hebrew is widow, and it connotes a person who is unable to speak for herself. She is marginalized in this society. Nobody much cared about the widow. God cared about her. But the widow was often poor, taken advantage of, very vulnerable in this particular society. The unscrupulous men exploited and oppressed widows. And then there's this last group called the rich. The rich were greedy, um, very self-centered people. They, they often owned the land. They, they were a category, and we have to remember, their society was not like ours. In, in our nation, we have a middle class, not really rich and not really poor, not destitute, all in need, of course, we would all agree with that. But, but the rich were more like what's referred to in our context as the one percenters, kind of like that. And the widow is representing of, with the orphans, the people at the lowest end, and it was such a dichotomy. So that's what makes Jesus' parable we're going to see in a moment so powerful to see the difference and what God thinks about these two groups. Okay, now that's the background. That's the lineup. Now, the, the game's going to be played out very quickly because there's not many verses here. So go over to Luke, and uh, let's take a look at that. First of all, we have to start back in the chapter before this. So go back to chapter 20. And we'll look at, at each of these pieces very quickly and then draw it to a close. Uh, in verse 45 of Luke chapter 20, I still hear pages turning, so I'll give you a moment. Luke 20, verse 45. While all the people were listening, 
Jesus is at the temple. Okay, imagine this scene. All the people are listening. Jesus said to his disciples. Now, they're in the temple area. They're obviously, the people are bringing sacrifices. And all these groups are coming through. And Jesus is winding up his ministry in the Gospel of Luke. He's getting ready to uh, discuss with his disciples the, the uh, what we call eschatology, it's just a big word that means last things, okay? He's getting ready to go to run through last things, and then he's going to go to the cross after that. So we're really close to his ministry wrapping up, and so he gives this one last teaching. So he says to the disciples, he, as he uh, uh, pulls it all together, Beware of the teachers. Literally, that word is scribes. In the original text, it says uh, the scribes. Beware of the scribes, for they walk around in flowing robes, and they love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have the most important seats in the synagogue and the places of honor at banquets. Watch this. They devour widows' houses. I'm going to explain that word in just in a moment. They devour widows' houses, and for a show, they make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Now, let me just unpack that very quickly walking around in flowing robes. You saw the picture of them just a moment ago. They're, they're priestly vestments, very ostentatious, very showy. So that's how they make their entrance into the temple precincts. They love marketplace greetings. I would imagine as they were on their way to the temple mounts, they walked through the agora, the marketplace, and they're getting all the greetings from all the people who are looking at them in their finery. Then they love to sit in the first seat. Literally, it's first seat in the synagogue, the places of study. So they want recognition in the marketplace, recognition in the worship place. They like sitting at the places of honor, first honor is what Luke is saying. They like recognition even at mealtime, at the banquets. But where do they get their money? They devour widows' houses. Literally, the word means they rob the widows. Now, you get in the picture? You got the rich guys literally going to the most vulnerable people in their society and devouring, robbing their houses. Now, there are a lot of explanations that scholars give for this, but, but one scholar said it's, it's, it might even mean that they, they knew the widow had a debt. Maybe her husband had a debt, and she's, she's going to have to pay it, or she's acquired a debt, so she signs her home over, and one of these scribes comes along and says, I'll help you. I'll look after you, knowing that she can't pay it. 
She'll never be able to pay that debt. So he robs her home. I mean, can you imagine that? Robbing this person of a place to live. They have no, where are they going to eat? What are they going to do? They're vulnerable. Then they get up into the religious settings and they love to pray their long, pious prayers. Well, that's the scribes. Jesus didn't have one good thing to say about them, did he? So we come to chapter 21. Jesus then observes the rich. As he looked up, Jesus saw the rich, you know who they are now, putting their gifts into the temple treasury. Now what they're doing is they're literally throwing their money in. You saw a picture earlier, it's the collection plate at the temple. There's a special word Luke uses and it means a trumpet-like, probably made out of brass, a trumpet, like a trumpet funnel. And you could come by and put your money and throw your money in, and you could, they could hear the coins clinking into the collection box. So if you want to be ostentatious and show everybody how much money you have, you throw your money in there, and everybody's listening. Wow, what an offering. Jesus then sees the poor widow she put in two small copper coins. The, the original text says she put in two lepta. It is, they are so small that I doubt they even made a tink when she tossed them into the trumpet. Wow, that is a contrast. Ostentatious, vicious, greedy, Vulnerable, poor, very little money, if any at all. So here's Jesus' comments on that. He says there in verse 4, or let's go back to 3. I tell you the truth, he says, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. And I would imagine that this offering, possibly a special offering time required by the law, they would have been parading through one after another, these wealthy, putting the big offerings in. And he says, all of these gave their gifts out of their wealth. They had plenty to give. But she gave out of her poverty. And then he says something very interesting. She put in all she had to live on. Literally, it means her life. She gave all the life, is how Luke writes that. So what do we make of this? <laughs> and then Luke moves on to the next story. Well, I think we can draw some conclusions here. The rich gave out of their abundance, literally, and the widow gives out of her deficiency. 
This is called sacrificial giving. In fact, if we're going to give an Academy Award, it would go to the widow. An Academy Award for giving that, Jesus is saying, that is Academy Award sacrifice. She gave all she had. So it's not the size of the gift that reflects the degree of sacrifice, is it? So, I mean, God knows our hearts. Jesus knows our hearts. The widow's might represents great sacrifice, and that's the teaching of the lesson. Sometimes it does take that step of sacrifice for us to be obedient to the Lord. And Jesus is saying that is real sacrifice. It's not the number of coins, but it's the nature of the heart. Daryl Bach comments on this passage. This woman gave obediently, gratefully, thankfully, and sacrificially. So these are the principles of giving, and they play out in all areas of our lives. It's in our, our time, our talents, our tithes. It's all of who we are. And relative to giving, I think the best way to sum this up would be to hear the words of Malachi once again. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Now, sometimes I hear, well, okay, that's Old Testament. But why didn't Jesus talk so much about tithing? Well, he did talk about tithing. It's usually when he was saying how the Pharisees would make their entrance sort of like these scribes, and, and Jesus talked about tithing in a pejorative kind of way, in a negative kind of way. Um, but he did talk about giving, and that is part of our giving, isn't it? We could go to Hebrews 7 and pick up there where the writer of Hebrews talks about Melchizedek. He goes back and picks up this tithe motif, and Melchizedek, he brings it into chapter 7, and he explains it there. We don't have time to explain that this morning. Uh, say that for another time, but basically, as we give our offerings, we're giving it to Jesus. Melchizedek is a type of Jesus in Hebrews. He makes that very clear in that passage. Jesus is the king of righteousness, and that's what Melchizedek, Melech is king, Zedek is righteousness, king of righteousness. He was also the king of Salem, and that we know is Yeru 
Salem. Right? A lot of connections there. But Jesus does say this. Give, and it will be given to you a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So I go back to our first day. I had a big bucket, and I had a little measuring cup. So how do we want to get received back from God? In the measuring cup or the bucket? I think the bucket's a better, better way to go, don't you? Giving. It's part of what we do. It's part of who we are. And now you know the rest of that story. Well, Lord, as we ponder these things, this is, this is a tough message because it speaks to our income, it speaks to our time, it speaks to how we budget everything we do in life. So Father, we just give you the time for invitation right now. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Show us. Because we really do want to be blessed by you, Father, in a big way. Father, we pray, thank you for the greatest gift ever given, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, took our place, took our penalty. He paid a debt we could never pay. So thank you, Lord, you did that for us. We have so much to be thankful and grateful and obedient to. Thank you for your sacrifice. I pray, Father, you'd show each of us how we are to give sacrificially in each of our own contexts. And Lord, that we would be obedient to hear your voice. Father, we would pray if others would be here today that would join us in this family. We pray that perhaps someone would say, you know, I want to be a part of a church that understands obedience and gratitude, thanksgiving and sacrifice. Father, whatever the needs are in this hour, Lord, we're grateful and thankful. Thank you that you give us the privilege of stewardship. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.